0: they're maybe eating a meal together. Jesus is going to do some teaching in that house, and pretty soon there's other people that are starting to show up. There's another knock on the door almost immediately after Jesus gets there. It's, it's Peter, and he says, hey, I'm with him, and, and, and he comes in, and then all of a sudden James and John and Andrew and Bartholomew, and they all just start, all 12 disciples start piling into this house. It's quite the party at this point. It The owner of the house starts to close at the door and it's the Pharisees and teachers of the law now the disciples of Jesus follow him around because they want to learn they want to grow they want to follow him but now the deci- or the Pharisees they follow Jesus around with different intent they're usually looking looking to trap him in his words they're looking for reasons uh, to come up with that maybe he's not this messiah he's not a prophet he's not the son of god and so they're always watching him with suspicious eyes and suspicious hearts and so So they pile in just looking to see what kinds of things Jesus is going to say and do. And so the owner of the house closes the door again. Pretty soon there's another knock and another knock. And then he just has to leave the door open because so many people come piling into this house. There's these four guys. Can you picture them kind of running towards the house? They hear these rumors that Jesus is in town. And so they they start heading towards this house And so they turn around and they start hightailing it to go tell their friend uh, about Jesus, that he's in town, but he's no ordinary friend. There's something wrong with this person. What's wrong with him? What does the text say? Look at like verse 3. What's it say? He's paralyzed. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to this person. I tend to think, though, that he lost the use of his legs later in life. And here's why. I can't necessarily prove it definitively from the text. But the fact that he has four people that care about him means that, that they've cared about him for a long time. And this is very, very unusual in Jesus' day because if you uh, didn't have use of your legs or you were blind or you couldn't speak or uh, you couldn't hear, you were deaf, if you had a skin disease, if there was just something wrong with you, wrong with you, and I put that in quotes, then the community believed that God has cursed you. And this is what they taught in, the, in their oral traditions, that, that God has cursed you. And, and there's even uh, parts of their law that says that God hates you and this is the way that he is demonstrating his hate towards you is that he's cursed you physically somehow. Uh, you can see this come alive in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples that are walking by a blind man in Jerusalem and everybody there knows that this guy was born blind. So he didn't go blind later in life. He was born blind and his disciples asked him, Jesus, who sinned? Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Is it his is it his parents? Because if it's his, does that mean that he sinned as an infant or, or in the womb? Or did his parents do something to anger God, to cause God to hate them so much that he was born blind? And Jesus basically says, well, it's in the Greek, you guys are a bunch of idiots for even asking this question. This man was born blind so the power of God could be displayed in him right now, and then Jesus ends up healing that man. I think this guy that's paralyzed, this happened to him later in life. Because if God has cursed people with these disabilities in their minds, then that gave them the right to curse those people and ostracize them from their communities. And so that means that if there's something wrong with you, you were not welcome in people's homes. You were not welcome in the community. You had to stay on the outside, on the outskirts. You had to beg. I mean, there, there's there's all kinds of things wrong with you. And so God hates you. Therefore, we have the right to hate you. And that's why Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, he's so revolutionary. It's so different in their thinking because he welcomes these people and he brings wholeness and healing into these people's lives. And he embraces them and he touches people that are untouchable and he loves people that are unlovable, and they don't know what to do with this, and these four guys are following suit. Who knows if he had a work accident, dove into a lake and broke his neck, maybe, maybe you know, it was a degenerative disease that just kind of took over and then he lost use of his, of his muscles and his leg. We don't, we don't know, but we do know that he has four people that care greatly about him. To the point that they're willing to give up their spot in this house, which is getting filled up, and go and get him. And we don't know if he's lying on a mat at home, or maybe he's at the town square, and he's begging, uh, hoping for a little bit of bread or a little bit of change. But either way, you could see these guys go and grab him up, one on each corner of the mat, and they just start running towards the house. And this guy is just bouncing along there, going, where are we going? What what are you doing? And they just shut up, we don't have time to tell you about it. And they, they go, and can you picture them turning the corner onto the street where Jesus is at, And they can't see the house anymore. It's just this huge. And so they run up to the house and they they try and get through and they're elbowing their way through, make way, we got to get up close to Jesus, but the house is packed. There's people on the outside of the house, it says, that it's so full that there's absolutely no room and nobody, absolutely nobody is going to give up their spot. They they don't want to lose their front row tickets to the Jesus show here. Jesus might do something amazing. He teaches like one who has authority, and so nobody's giving up their spot. They're surely not going to give up their spot for this cripple who's been cursed by God. And so they try and get in the front door. They can't do it. And so what does the text say? They lay the guy down there in the street, and they say, sorry, bud, we tried, and they go home. Sermon over. Let's go. Let's go eat. Is that what happens? No. Do you all talk in church? Am I in the wrong place? Like, what, what happens? Do they just give up and go home? That's why I tell you open up your Bible. I might mess something up. No, they don't go home. What happens? They take them up on the roof. Now, let's just pause for a second. This proves something in this text. This proves that they are teenage boys. Gentlemen in the room. Whether you are a teenager or you once were a teenager, how many of you got up on a roof for just no apparent reason but just to climb up on the roof? Teenagers. Because they don't give up. They're going, okay, they won't let us in. We'll figure out a way to get up there. So whether it's by ropes or whether uh, a lot of times there was a little stairwell or a ladder that led up to a flat roof, not pitched roofs like what we have today, but flat that they would use for storage or sometimes they would uh, sleep in the cool of the night if they had extra guests in their house or even keep animals up there for safety. Uh, But either way, they got up on this roof and so as as they get up in the roof, they start tearing a hole in the roof. Now, have you ever been sitting in church and there's a distraction? What are some distractions in church? Kids. <laughs> My kids are a distraction in church. Boot them off to children's church, right? <laughs> Yeah, whether that's, you know, a, a baby crying or in my sermons, usually there's an old man that's snoring somewhere. Yeah, yeah, there's distractions in church. I'm convinced, though, babies crying are not distractions in church because the mom or dad usually gets, gets flustered and, they, and then they leave. Why is it that babies never cry during loud music? They only cry during quiet communion time. Have you ever noticed that? And so, baby's crying. That, that's not the distraction. The distraction actually comes with the mom, and you are living proof of this, young lady. That when a mom sits on the front row with a baby, and then they put that baby up on their shoulders, so you have your baby lower here. But if you would put your baby up on your shoulders, the rows that are behind you would not pay another would not pay attention to another word that I say at this point. They would just be making faces at your baby. So if you have to put that baby up here, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go to the back row, okay? (laughs) Yeah, there's just, I'm kidding, of course, but there's distractions that we have in church sometimes. When I was growing up, I came to Christ at about 14, um, great little church that I was a part of, and there was this old lady, Jane McCowan, that just loved me to pieces and always tended to sit by me in church. And after communion time, that poor woman always wanted to eat a peppermint, and so she had her cellophane during the the cellophane around this peppermint with her poor arthritic fingers, and it was just and it's just, it would drive me absolutely crazy, and then she would, she would g- like get it open, and she would put it in her mouth, and with her dentures, then for the next one, to just unwrap it, take it, and just shove it down her throat, like, there, Jay, like, She was a lovely lady, I promise. Like she really was so sweet. But there's just distractions in church and that always distracted me from listening. Now, babies, Jane McCowan have nothing on the distractions that these teenage boys are going to, to have right now because here's Jesus in the middle of his lesson. He's teaching Everybody's sitting around, eyes fixed on Jesus when all of a sudden there's a little bit of dust that starts to fall on his head and everybody's eyes just look up. A preacher can always tell when people are paying attention based on eye contact. And so everybody starts looking up. Pretty soon, there's sunlight that's poking through. They see all of these hands with the thatch and the, and the mud and the tiles that are up there. And they're just pulling this through. Can you imagine what the owner of the house is thinking right now? I know what I would be doing if my son's friends were up on the roof digging a hole. You would only hear one word. Well, it's not even a word. You would just hear... You know, like, we've got a problem here. Get off of my roof. I don't know what the owner of the house is thinking. Like, is he getting his insurance on the line, homeowner's insurance? What's happening here? But either way, there's just this hole now in the roof. Jesus has to stop teaching. There's eight goofy eyeballs looking down at him. They're like, hey, Jesus. He's like, hey, I'm kind of in the middle of something here. And they go, yeah, we know. And they shove this guy down through the hole in the roof. And can you picture Jesus? He has to get up and like help him out. Peter jumps up and they help and they lower this man down and everybody there is just excited. Everybody has to make a little bit of room. The, the people that wouldn't let him in the front door to begin with probably lost their spot because this guy is now taking up a lot of room in this very, very crowded house and everybody knows what's about to happen. You know what's about to happen. What's the spoiler? What's going to happen? Jesus is going to heal this guy. Absolutely, we know that this guy is going to walk out of the room. I'm sorry to spoil it. A healing. So you can picture everybody kind of holding their breath. Here's the disciples. They've seen this before a few times. The Pharisees are sitting over here. They know, know what Jesus is thinking at this point. Everybody in the house has heard rumors that this guy's a miracle worker. The four guys up on the roof are just standing there waiting and anticipating. And then Jesus does it. He bends down they go, oh man, we know what's going to happen now. Maybe he's reaching out his hand to touch the guy. And they're like, okay, there's going to be a healing in this place. And everybody's excited. And then Jesus says something. And, he, and everybody thinks he's going to say, hey, you're, you're healed. Get up and walk. But he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Thanks, Jesus. Now, you know what's going to happen. We've already spoiled the story, but everybody in the house and the four guys up on the roof, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. They're living in this moment. They brought him there. I'm sure they had a specific purpose, and the purpose was healing, and that's why he brought them there. Do, Do you have a bad gift giver in your family? Don't point at him if he's here. My son Caleb, he tries with all of his heart, but all of our gifts are bought on the day of our birthday from the Dollar General that's a mile down the road from our house. I mean, that's fine. It's just kind of the way he is. My grandma... Oh, bless her heart. She's 94. When I was younger, I was her favorite. Um, and she would say this, which really made my brothers and my cousins really, really happy about that. We just had to have still to this day a special bond. Uh, she's super short and, and she's asked me uh, numerous times to do her funeral. And I'm like, yep, and don't buy a coffin. We've got a shoebox for you, grandma. And, and cause she keeps shrinking and you think that's horrible. She laughs, she really likes that kind of stuff. And so like, we're, we're just close. And when I was 12, she told me, hey, I'm making you something for Christmas. What was the one word that a 12-year-old boy does not want to hear from his grandma? Making. And then I open up the sweater, and my cousins are snickering at me, and then uh, she, says, she says, do you like it? And what did I say? Yeah, oh, so you've lied to your grandmother as well. At least one person in here has. There's a special spot in you know where for people that lie to their grandmother. It's like the 11th commandment, something that we should not ever do. But I did it. I go, oh, yeah. Then she goes, okay, then put it on. There I am putting it on. Do you think I ever wore that sweater again? Yeah, when I went to grandma's house and my mom made me put it on, that's when I wore it again. But it just, was, it just missed the mark with the gift. Can you imagine Jesus bending down and him saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and the four guys up on the roof are like, thanks, Jesus, but do you got anything else under the tree? Like, just kind of beside themselves with this. But I think the guy on the mat is perfectly content if the only thing that he got was forgiveness of sins because everybody in the room and everybody in his community thought that he has done something sinful to deserve this punishment of not being able to walk, to being a paralytic And Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is now erasing that stigma from his life. Your sins are forgiven. Maybe he did do something that he deserved this. Who knows? But either way, that is wiped out. And he gets to leave that place no matter if it's on his mat or if he walks out of that place forgiven and free. And I think that matters to him. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're standing there and they start thinking to themselves, notice they're not verbalizing what they're saying, they're just thinking to themselves, who is this man that is forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. And they're absolutely right. It is blasphemy. It is only God's responsibility and his power to forgive our eternal sins. They just refuse to believe that this is God in the flesh that's in their presence forgiving sins in that moment. And so Jesus, he says, hey, which is easier, to say to this man your sins are forgiven or to say to him, get up and walk? So I'll ask you the same question. Hey, your sins are forgiven or to tell somebody to get up and walk? You're healed. Maybe they're both really, really easy to say and both really hard to do. It's really easy to say to somebody that you're forgiven it's really easy to say hey I, I, I can bring some healing into your life maybe it's hard to do both of those things to forgive and to heal and jesus says but to show you that the son of man and that's the way he referred to himself from the prophets to show you that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins i believe he says something like this watch this and he turns to the man and he tells him to get up, take his mat, walk, go home. Now we don't know how this happens. We just know that it's an up close and personal miracle in this crowded house. But whether uh, you know blood starts to flow and he's like a wobbly baby giraffe with his legs as as the tendons and muscles start to tighten and maybe he pulls up on Peter and he stretches his legs a little bit and then he can walk. I tend to think he's more like Jackie Chan and he's just like whoa ha and just pops up and throat kicks a Pharisee or something right there because Jesus just instantly healed his legs but either way the guy gets up and he's walking and i'm sure that he's praising god i'm sure that the entire house just explodes with with just celebration and, and amazement at what happened here and everybody is just going whoa and they're looking at him and they're touching his legs and they're congratulating the four guys up on the roof i bet they start celebrating high-fiving each other hugging each other as a matter of fact the text says that one of them fell through the roof broke his leg jesus had to heal him too Open your Bibles that's not in there. <laughs> Somebody was like, Really? I never knew that part of the story. Yeah, I make some things up every now and then, but I'll at least tell you. And it's a great story, and it says that the man walked home and we don't know another thing about him. I wonder when he walked home, do you, do you think he, he ran home because he had a family? We we don't know. We have no idea he take a slow walk around the Sea of Galilee or something just in amazement. I, I was carried in here by my friends and now, now I'm walking and, and he's, just, he's just taking time by himself in, in utter amazement. I think he probably took the four guys up on the roof out for pizza afterwards or figs or whatever they ate back then. I mean, just to celebrate with them particular because they were the ones that went through the extra effort to get him there. It's an amazing story that just kind of ends abruptly and off, end abruptly like that. We go, well, that was a great story, and we close our Bible and we have no clue how to apply it. I love teaching at, at Ozark Christian College. I, I teach Old Testament there, um, a few, few other classes. I've had, uh, I've had Jed in class, and he's great, Luke Palmquist, and, and Destiny, and uh, great students that you produce out of here. Uh, thank you for trusting us with them at, at that juncture of their life. We, we absolutely the stu- love the students that we get from this area. Uh, but when I teach Old Testament, there's often that students just kind of roll their eyes because there's so many things in there that they think just don't apply to their lives. Don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk, Exodus says. Well, check that one off the list. I don't struggle with that sin. You know, <laughs> What to do, when do you, if you have mold in your house? You know? well, I guess that one still applies today. What to do if you have oozing, pussing skin diseases and how to check that out and all this stuff in there and I tell them all the time you think you just struggle with things from Leviticus but here we just read a story from Mark and I bet you we're in here struggling on how to apply it. Can I suggest a couple of ways? Two ways. One, first way is, I think we can apply this text personally. Like we could walk out of here and take something home and go, okay, I'm going to wrestle with this. I'm going I'm I'm to chew on this and, and maybe act on this uh, by the way that Jesus interacted with the man on the mat. What is the first thing that Jesus said to this man? Do you remember? Do you see it there? Your sins are forgiven. Good. And then what's the second thing that he says? You're healed. Get up and walk. Yeah, can I suggest maybe the first way that we can apply this text, that I think Jesus did this in this particular order for a reason for this man and even for us today. Because if Jesus wanted to, could he have just snapped his fingers and that guy gotten up and walked? He didn't have to go through all of that. I mean, at any point, Jesus is always looking for faith out of, out of the person that's there. And so I don't know if he's got this faith thing going on with him that he's looking for, but, but either way, this ordering, I think, is extremely important to why Jesus you know, brought healing and forgiveness into this man's life. And he, and he does it in the order of forgiveness first, healing second. Forgiveness follows, or healing follows forgiveness. Healing follows forgiveness and I bet you in a room this size that there are some people in here that are looking for healing and wholeness in their life and maybe one of the biggest spiritual barriers that you have is the issue of forgiveness I preached uh, one time on uh, the topic of the text that talks about it before you could take a speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye why don't you take the plank or the log out of your eye first and I had these little planks of wood. I had door shims is what I got. And, and, and people wrote down, maybe there's things that they see in other people that they don't like, but when they reflect upon themselves, they actually see it in themselves. And I just had them write down what they would over those things. Um, and then the next day, the Monday, I went there and I was cleaning up all those door shims and I'm looking through them just to see what the congregation had, had written. And over one third of those door shims had uh, the word or an issue of forgiveness on there. 500-something people, and over a third of them had a forgiveness issue that they were wrestling with. That they don't like it when others don't forgive, but then they were having a tough time for, with it. I mean, the word forgiveness means uh, a couple. There's a couple of different words. One of, one word means to cover over, and it's this idea in the Old Testament of when you know they would make a sacrifice of an animal that that blood would cover over the ark, or the blood would cover over their sins, uh, and and that's the idea. It's a covering uh, of for sins. But then there's this other word that's in there that's used less frequently, um, but it has to do with human to human. Human forgiveness and it means to unclench the fist it's kind of a weird word like to unclench and the idea is is that you have your fist clenched up so tight and you're approaching this person that has hurt you they've hurt your friends or they've hurt your family your loved ones and and you want to pound them over and over again with your clenched clenched fist until you feel better and so the word forgiveness means to unclench the fist It's either that or the idea is uh, there's a better way to interpret that, that you have your fist clenched around their throat and you are slowly squeezing the life out of them. And the idea is, is that it's supposed to make you feel better exacting that kind of revenge upon them. And so to let loose, unclench the fist, let them go and forgive. That's easier said than done, isn't it? We struggle with forgiveness with other people, don't we? I just have to say the word divorce, layoff. You just have to look around at who's not sitting next to you in this pew, and they would never sit by you because they're not around your dinner table at Thanksgiving time or Christmas. That there's forgiveness issues that we wrestle with, don't we? Let loose. Healing follows forgiveness. Most of the time when we're wrestling with those forgiveness issues, it, it, it's that we're wrestling with that bitter root that's welling up inside of us and we allow it to consume us. We can't sleep at night. We, we, we don't know what to do with that, but then the other person is off living their life with, with no regard to how you're feeling whatsoever. So let it go. Let loose, and that word, it, it, it's a continuous word, meaning that you can't just let loose one time, but that you have to let loose over and over and over again, because just at the moment that you think that you've let go of something, then, then you've got your fists clenched back around their throat figuratively once again, and what happens, what you want is a scar. Scars tell stories, don't they? How many of you have a scar somewhere? You fell or you had surgery? Sure. And I bet you right now, if I called you up on stage, you could tell me exactly where the scar is and you could tell me exactly what happened. This was from knee surgery, this is when I fell, this is when I you know, hit a tree branch or something, you know, whatever it is that you could tell me exactly where that scar came from because those scars tell stories and they've healed over. But when you don't allow forgiveness to take center stage whenever somebody has wronged you or you've wronged them, whatever it looks like, then what you have is an open wound that's still festering, getting infected, and it affects every other part of your life, no different than if it was on your arm or your leg. It affects your whole body. You wonder why you can't pray anymore? You wonder why the word of God seems dull, and boring, or obsolete in your life? Is it because maybe you have a forgiveness issue? Healing follows forgiveness. For some of you in here, it's not necessarily that you have a problem with forgiving other people. Maybe the issue comes in with you, you don't know how to forgive yourself. And if there was anything that I wrestle with, it would be that one. That why is it that the people that I love the most, strangers, as some of you are going to talk to me after service and we're going to have an interaction, I'm going to be completely nice, but then I could go home and then I'm yelling at my kids or I'm being rude to my wife. Why do we do that? And there's been moments where I've caught myself and i thought, this is not right. And I've gone to them and I've apologized and I've asked for forgiveness. And they have graciously extended it and they have let it go. They have let it loose. They don't hold it over my head whatsoever. Yet I keep beating myself up over and over and over again. I keep crucifying myself as if it's me that belongs up on the cross. When Jesus has already taken care of that and they have extended that forgiveness, why do you think people struggle with, with eating disorders and cutting, suicidal thoughts, and over medication and, you know, and alcohol and addictions and gambling? That could there be, could there be a forgiveness issue at the root of some of that? Could it be that we don't love ourselves enough to understand that we have been forgiven? And that forgiveness is followed by healing. Healing follows forgiveness. And there's some people probably in this room that you don't have any problem you know, forgiving other people. You probably don't have any problem forgiving yourself or maybe you do wrestle with that a little bit. But your main area of concern when it comes to forgiveness is does God forgive me? Because you walk into a place like this and you look at all of the people around here and it seems like they've got their acts together and you see people communing together and all of that is good, healthy, and holy things that take place in here. And then you say, not me. Because if they knew the real me, if they knew what I had going on in my life or what I did on Saturday nights or what I was, you know, who I am on the inside, this church would, der- would not accept me. I would be pushed out. That you feel like an outcast because everybody in here is perfect. Please raise your hand if you're perfect. Well, welcome home. (laughs) If somebody would raise their hand, please just get out because you're going to ruin it for the rest of us. And you say, yes, I understand that. I know nobody's perfect, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the sinful things that I've, that I've got in my life, that I'm too unholy, I'm too dirty. And what we're doing is we're not actually doubting ourselves in those moments, that we're doubting that the blood of Jesus Christ can cover us. It's good enough to cover everybody else's sins, but mine are too bad and you are too wrong with that statement. That you have a faith issue, not a forgiveness issue. You have a faith issue that Jesus Christ on the cross is enough to cover your sins. Why do you think that? Because you know, if you had somebody that came up to you and was confessing sins and things that they've done and wrongs that they've done, and they're wondering, can God forgive me, you would instantly say, yes, absolutely, the blood of Christ covers all. Then why don't you apply that to your own life? ask you, if you're holy, you would say no, because you think too much about your sin instead of thinking about your Savior. That he is the one that makes you holy by his blood. That you are perfect people. Not because of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Not because of what I do. But because I've been forgiven and set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he makes me holy and perfect, spotless and stainless. And he does that for you as well. Because then on the day of judgment, whenever you're standing before the throne of God, and he's saying, why should I let you into my kingdom? There is no good reason. You don't have to answer that question. You just point to the person to your right and he stands right in front of you and says, this is why. And God views you through the blood and the crucifixion and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Healing follows forgiveness. There's one other way to apply this text, which really has nothing to do with the man on the map, but has everything to do with how he got there. Do you remember how he got there? Right, wheelchair, bus, transportation system, right? Next stop, Jesus. Is that how he got there? How did he get there again? Oh, yeah, he had friends that carried him. We talked about how unusual that is to just have people that would go the extra mile. And, and, and you remember when we have this Jesus person and, and as he's interacting with different people that he's healed, he always wants them to find. And who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, when Jesus speaks to him, he says, this man was born blind so that the power of God could be demonstrated in him. The next thing that Jesus says is... And he spits on the ground and he makes a little holy mud pie and he smears mud in the man's eyes. And he says, now I want you to go walk to this certain pool and go wash out your eyes in the pool of Siloam. That that instance of him smearing mud on his eyes and then the walking was that man demonstrating faith. Could Jesus have just flicked him in the head and healed him? Absolutely. Could Jesus, with this man that's laying here, just spoken some words and he gotten up? But no, Jesus wants faith demonstrated with these healings that he has. And he's always looking for faith. But the unusual thing about Mark chapter 2 is verse 5, that he actually doesn't need any kind of faith demonstrated from this man because Mark chapter 2, verse 5 says that when Jesus looked up and saw their faith, He saw their faith, their faith, their faith. It was because of the faith of the four guys that were on the roof that this man got forgiveness and healing brought into his life. That Jesus is looking at their faith, and maybe he's looking at our faith too. That yes, there are people out there that should be sitting in here today, but they're choosing not to, and you're thinking, if they would just have more faith that then they would find the healing and the forgiveness that they're looking for. But Jesus is looking at coming to church. He tells the saints to go out of the church and to go get them. That's what he does. And so will you do whatever it takes to bust through a roof for somebody to make sure that they get the same healing and forgiveness that you have experienced? I think about this. I was a youth pastor for, for about 10 years, um, and there's this little girl in my youth group named Jenna. She was as sweet as can be, um, and she shows up to youth group on a Wednesday night. Um, we, have a ba- we had a band that was ready to strike up. This is up in the Portland, Oregon area, and, and we were just getting ready to start. There was gonna be music, and I was gonna make some announcements, and she brought her friend Amanda with her, um, and, and, and I meet Amanda really quick before I'm ready to go up on the stage, um, and Jenna says, hey, Amanda wants to be baptized tonight and i thought that's awesome that's great after our service is over we'll sit down the three of us we'll have a conversation about that you know because baptism is a serious thing we want to make sure that they understand what the washing away of their sins and you know just just all of the elements that come along with this this great demonstration of faith and jenna says do you, do you think i would bring somebody here to be baptized that i haven't shared the gospel with that i haven't told him these things and i thought well you little snot Eighth grade girl, she's fourteen years old and, and she's putting me in my place. I'm like I know Greek, kind of. And so we'd sit down right then and there and we start things late and sure enough that Jenna had been getting her lunch and Amanda had been getting her lunch. They were they were friends and, and instead of eating in the lunchroom at their junior high, they would sit in a stairwell parents divorce and there you know there are just some things that kind of led to her reaching out because she was hurting and needed some forgiveness and some healing and Jenna provided that through the word of God and so for weeks sitting in that stairwell just eating lunch together opening up the word and then that continued at her house a little bit and to the point that she came to church with her and she's ready to commit her life to Jesus Christ. said go ahead and so she goes up there and baptizes her friend and it was just amazing and our youth group exploded with excitement and it was awesome very next day Thursday I get a call and it's Amanda and and Jenna Jenna calls me at home it's dinner time and she says, hey, Amanda and I, uh, we've been talking with our friend Tiffany. And Tiffany had been joining them for some of those Bible studies and then in their home. But then they, uh, they found Tiffany immediately after youth group the night before and then continued these conversations at school uh, about what had happened. And Tiffany wanted to give her life to the Lord. And I did not dare ask Jenna, like, did you share the gospel with her? Did you tell her the importance of this? I didn't want to be put in my place by an eighth grade girl again. And I said, "Man, this is awesome Sunday morning. Old folks love it when young people are, you know, doing things on the stage or baptizing their friends. I mean, the, you, the old people in this church—no offense to you whatsoever. Whenever I say that, you, at the end of the service, you will skip lunch, you'll do whatever it takes, and then you're you're going to walk out of the baptistry, and they're going to be like, welcome to the family.' You know, like they love you. Our and I knew our older folks were going to love the things that." That Amanda and Jenna were about to do on Sunday morning. And Jenna said, Sunday morning, no, 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 no. Her parents are on the way up to the church right now. We've called friends. They're going up to the church right now. I thought, oh. So we put dinner on hold and we pack up our family and we go up to the church and we unlock it and we get everything set. And then, wouldn't you know it, a few months later on a Saturday, late at night, I get a call. It's past 10 o'clock. At this point, I'm like a typical dad. I'm falling asleep in front of the news. I don't even know if I had pants on at that point. And it's Jenna because she taught Sunday school with another teacher uh, in in like fifth and sixth grade girls or something, fourth and fifth grade girls. She was a freshman at this time. My timeline's a little bit mixed up, but either way, I get this phone call. And she had three or four of those girls over at her house and a couple of them wanted to be baptized, like they were just doing a slumber party. She was just having them over and having fun. But she had been sharing the gospel with them every Sunday morning and then taking them out, you know, and, and hanging out with them and stuff. And, and and this goes on and on and on throughout her high school career, including baptizing her dad and her stepdad and her brother, a teacher other students, students with disabilities coming to our church. I mean, she, she just, she didn't play volleyball. She didn't play soccer. She didn't do anything. She just was consoled that she would not bust through our roof. I got so tired of getting up late at night or on days that I wasn't, or, you know, evenings that I wasn't supposed to be at the church that I just went to the hardware store and I made Jenna a key to the church and I said, here, you don't need my permission. You don't need my authority. You are doing exactly what Jesus would want us to do, that these people are looking at her faith, her faith, her faith as she would do whatever it takes to get them into there and into the word and into her life into her life in Christ and if one little girl throughout junior high and high school can set this kind of example for you and I what are our excuses church? Why do I stand in fear? What's the worst thing that can happen to me? No, go bust through a roof because I know I have people and you know you have people that need the same healing and forgiveness that you've gotten. Somebody busted through a roof for you and somebody busted through one for me. And they weren't ashamed to share the gospel with us. So what is our problem? Jesus is looking to our faith so that we can find the healing and forgiveness that we're looking for and that they're looking for out there. And if one little girl can set the example, imagine what happens with this entire army. Steps up to the plate and busts through a roof. I'm going to close in prayer. There's going to be some leaders that are going to gather around either up front or in the back from what I've been told want to just pray over somebody that you know is hard-hearted, but you want to bust through a roof for them. There is no judgment whatsoever. If you have a healing or a forgiveness issue that you're wrestling with, no judgment. Go and seek out the support and the encouragement of your church family. I'll be sitting on the front row right up here. I'll gladly pray with you. After the service is over and you guys are being dismissed, I'm back at that table that's back there with those our Christian college. If you have any questions about things talked about today or school, I would be glad to meet you.